Kyle, your long-lost friend Greg Long here. Checking in with your brother. Hope you've been doing well. Sending my regards from Southern Baja. I've been hanging out and isolating down here the last month and a half. Been rather blustery springtime conditions, but beautiful nonetheless. There's amazing wildflower bloom happening. The gray whales making their way north. Plenty of space to walk about in the desert and the beaches. So uh, enjoying the slow downtime. Hope you guys have been doing the same up there. Miss you all. Just dropped into town to get some service. Download a couple more podcasts. Keep them coming. Always appreciate the entertainment and education, brother. Big hug and love to you and the fam. Hope you guys are all doing well and hope to see you soon. Gregory, so nice to hear from you, my friend. It's been a long time. If any of you want to send me voice memos, you can record it on your phone, try and keep it under a minute, and email it to info at kyle.surf. Those of you who don't know, Greg, the guy in that voice memo, is a big wave surfer who, as you might be able to tell from his voice in that memo, is very regal. He's very calm, cool, and collected. When he speaks in public, he often uses the steeple with his hands until the waves get big. And then he turns into a frothed out nine-year-old boy and his eyes light up and he stays in the water all fucking day long. I've actually never seen anyone get so psyched. The water transforms him. And we'll talk about that quite a bit in this episode, what the water can do to each of us when we are in, on, and around it. But before we do, I want to bring on a new sponsor. This episode is made possible by the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation is a private foundation dedicated to humanitarian, scientific, and environmental action that foster a resilient and restorative planetary ecology. And I dare say that these ads are the coolest goddamn ads anyone will ever get to do because I'm not selling you a product. I get to sell you a specific cause every episode. I get to connect you with people who are doing good work right now and need your help. And the first one is Ron Finley from the Ron Finley Project. The Ron Finley Project is an LA-based group that envisions a world where gardening is gangster and where cool kids know their nutrition and where communities embrace the act of growing, knowing, and sharing the best of Earth's fresh-grown food. Inspired by the idea of turning unused space, such as parkways and vacant lots, into fruitful endeavors, this garden and gathering place will be a community hub where people can learn about nutrition and join together to plant, work, and unwind. I talked to Ron today, and I said, hey man, what do you need? He was calling from his space in South LA where they have a huge urban garden up and running. And I've been to this space and I interviewed Ron for my podcast. And just to set the scene, it's this huge forest um, with veggies and fruit trees. And there is a derelict old swimming pool that's drained that they have put a garden in. Uh, So that's the scene where Ron is calling from. And this is what he sent me. Hey, Kyle, how you doing? Hope you're managing in this crazy pandemic quarantine situation we got going here. 
Uh, it's Ron Finley from the Ron Finley Project, Gangster Gardener. Um, what I'm trying to do here is um, beautify my space more, where it's more convenient and more lush. And, and um, what I want to do is start bringing more community in. So what we need, we need somebody that can build us a riser inside our swimming pool. And also we got a deck going in so we can have yoga classes and we can do dinners and lunches and presentations. And that's, that's what I want this space to be this welcome and opening to show people how we can design these urban areas to look beautiful and design them for humanity. That's what we're trying to do. So if you are a builder or if you want to volunteer in some other capacity, click the link below and get connected with Ron. Also, please, please let me know that you've done it because the Nell Newman Foundation is sponsoring this podcast because I reach a big diverse group of people from all around the world and they know and I know that if we can connect people from different worlds, we're going to be a lot more effective. So if you guys do connect with Ron, um, anyone that wants to help out, please reach out to me and let me know. This episode of the podcast is also made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD products that I use every single night. They, use a, they make a CBD tincture that I take before bed, and it helps me with sore muscles and sleep. And I'm about to start a new box of goodies. Uh, those of you who've been listening to this show for a while know that I did that for a while and then I stopped. I'm going to get that back going. So I'm going to send a, a book that I love every single month out with a CBD tincture, all at a reduced cost. That's going to be coming out in the next couple weeks, so stay tuned. But for now, if you want to get that tincture on its own, you can head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off. This episode is with one of my heroes. Wallace J. Nichols is a scientist, wild water advocate, movement maker, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Blue Mind, the surprising science that shows how being near, in, on, or underwater can make you happier, healthier, more connected, and better at what you do. Please give it up for my friend, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. Paying attention during this, the, well, all elections, but I always notice how how many politicians yell. They just yell <laughs> all the time. You ask them in a debate, you ask them a simple question, they step up to the mic and they start yelling. And or in an auditorium, they, and the thing is, they have a microphone in front of them. So there's a, there's a thing attached to that microphone called volume, and so you can adjust the volume. You don't need to yell if you have a microphone. I mean, even you know, I'm wearing a microphone. You have a mic, big microphone in front of you. You probably shouldn't yell too much, and because you can always adjust the volume. And it's just amazing how often people are just yelling all the time at each other, over each other, past each other, through each other. And I love when when you hear, um, uh, like, you know, a politician will just be a little bit quiet, and the quiet their quiet mode is their normal mode. And then when they yell, you know that something. Like you better be paying attention or running for the door if they're yelling because there's a fire. Uh, but that lower key uh, for most of the time, you know, of course, 
kind of like the peace time is most of the time. And then when, when it's wartime, you, you better yell. It's like, hey, we're, we're going to battle or, hey, there's a fire. But we've gotten accustomed to yelling all the time, whether it's social media or debate stage or in an auditorium and you go to a game and everybody's yelling. And it's just like, I'm personally, I, I can't handle it. It's not, not the way I'm built for yelling. I tend to be lower key. So. I interviewed uh, Van Jones once. He's a uh, CNN correspondent. He um, has done a lot of work for Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. um, as well as getting people who are just coming out of the prison system um, jobs and specifically green jobs. He started an organization called the Green for All. And he's an incredible speaker. But I once asked him about his speaking techniques. And he said, people think that speaking is about what you say. Really, it's about the pauses you take between what you say. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly right, and he's he's a master of that. I I am um, my personal I, like you. I think I've ended up kind of ended up speaking a lot in public, not planning on doing that initially. I planned on studying sea turtles and sequencing DNA in the lab, and um, I used to stutter uh, very badly all the way through grad school, and. Uh, the way I work through it to be able to speak so that you can understand me is uh, those pauses. So now in my speaking style, whether I'm on a podcast or speaking on a podium, I have these long pauses and people have said kind of like to Van Jones's point, um, I really love those pauses. And I kind of chuckle inside because it's not a speaking technique. It's a, it's a, it's a workaround to, uh, to avoid making sounds that don't make any sense and also make people really uncomfortable when they hear you stutter. And uh, yeah. that's, that's been my, my workaround is the, the pause. And mm. again, it's useful in every, every, you know, before you make a big decision, just pause, sleep on it, you know, as they say, maybe many nights. Um, it, you, will, you won't regret it. Uh, almost, almost never will you regret pausing, yeah. I wonder how much the way in which we speak dictates our emotional state. When I look at someone like Bill O'Reilly on TV and he's constantly shouting, it is an act. And I understand that he's doing that act because it's entertaining and it gets people drawn in. But I wonder, is that raising his own cortisol levels consistently you know, mm-hmm. on a daily basis? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think about um, just the trick of, smiling to put yourself mm-hmm. in a good mood. Mm-hmm. And I, and I wondered, you know, how has getting over your stutter, um, impacted you psychologically? Uh, you know, I, I think one thing that's for sure is before I speak, uh, even on, on a podcast and or at a, a keynote or something, I get, I get kind of, I have sort of flashbacks to, the days when I, I literally couldn't string a whole sentence together out loud. And so I have kind of this remnant, you know, even if it's subconscious fear of, of speaking and having it recorded or having a group of people listen. And so my, you know, it's, you know a, a fear issue that I need to get over is right, every time before public speaking, I'm, I'm looking for the back door. I mean, literally, if you said, if you said, Hey, you know, you want to skip it? Yeah. Yes, please. See ya. Uh, that's how I'm feeling, and um, so that's part of it. Is just the 
getting over your own internal fear and um and the people who study fear you know have have offered it different kinds of advice and it's sort of the pre-fear like the precursor to actual fear you can you can nip it in the bud right then and redirect the pre-fear so you don't go into fear and part of that uh is just calling it out knowing you know having a little bit of neuroliteracy having some knowledge of how your own brain and body work. And, you know, you, you mentioned cortisol and, uh, you know, the, uh, the neurochemistry, the more you know about that, the more you can say, Oh, I know, I know brain, I know body, what you're doing to me here. That's, that's cortisol. I feel it. I'm going to call it out. I'm going to draw a circle around it and say, I, I get this. And now this is my cortisol. This is, this is my fear. This is, or my lack of fear. I think that's a big part of it is just being, uh, not giving that knowledge up to marketers and to politicians because they understand it really well and they use it, you know, to sell us stuff we don't need. Uh, so owning your own uh, neurochemistry and your own neurophysiology and being neuroliterate uh, is probably the basis of uh, even e eco literacy. I would say you, if you want to be eco literate, you better start out by being neuroliterate and then expanding from there and you'll have a lot more success because if, if you're just a know-it-all and you have all your eco facts straight and you're blabbing at people and telling them what to do they're not going to listen or if you're shouting at them all the time or making them feel guilty uh, or shameful or making them feel dumb because they don't know what you know good luck it's not going to work uh, so understanding neuroscience and psychology turns out to be just as if not more important than having all the facts straight. And, uh, and it's true, it's true for our own personal um, self-management and self-awareness as well as for um, you know, managing others or influencing others. And, uh, and you know, that as a surfer, right? I mean, you, if, there's no way you're going to conquer your fear unless you just start to really understand it and drill down into it and, go right into the middle of that fear and just sit on its head and go, Hey, here I am. Yeah. It's a very empowering idea too, because you can make these subtle shifts to the way that you speak and the way that you think about the story of your own life. And then all of a sudden you get uh, results from other people. They start saying yes to you more <laughs> than saying no. Mm -hmm. um, and people want to be around others who are in states of equanimity more than anger. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. insight that I had just recently was that there are all these different emotional states, obviously from anger to peace and every fear and everything in between. Um, and, and the way that I had always thought about emotional states is that we kind of <clears throat> jump between one to the next. And there are things that we enjoy and things that are, scary to us. Um, but I didn't know until I started meeting people that have, that have spent a lot of time meditating that there's actually a gulf of emotions. That's as big as there are athletes in the world. <laughs> like there are meditative athletes. There are people that have really cultivated a skill to be in a state of equanimity more time than not mm -hmm. just in the way that you know, LeBron James and me 
are just <laughs> wildly different in our athletic ability, right? And to to just notice and have the realization that you really can work on your uh, mindfulness, athletic ability, and mm-hmm. life gets so much better when you do. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, I think that that's one of the great insights right there. Just what you said of of our age, you know, really of of this of this decade, of this moment in this decade. And I think, um, you know, that's wisdom that's been around for quite a while. It's not really anything new. And actually the science is not it's fairly new, but it's been around. Uh, but I think there's a whole big group of people who are, are understanding what you just said there on a whole new level this month. Uh, maybe for the first time they're going, that mindfulness thing's pretty interesting. I, You know, I kind of rolled roll my eyes at all that before meditation, huh? Blue mind or whatever you want to, you know, whatever version of it. Uh, there used to be a lot of eyeball rolling and kind of like, Oh, you California, you know, ferns and gongs and whatever you got. And now they're going, wow, this is, uh, this is what I need right now. Maybe one of the only things that's things that's going to work to, to get us collectively through this moment. Uh, and then that's pretty exciting. You know, that's, you know, it's a little early to start talking silver linings, um, you know, to in the context of the middle of a global pandemic. But I think that could be one of them if we, uh, if everybody writes it down so that in two months or five months or two years, they can go back and say, oh, yeah, note to self, uh, be mindful, uh, study mindfulness and keep that practice going because. Uh, it worked then and it, it's going to keep working now um, when different kinds of anxiety and pressures and, and um, uh, overloads are around it may not mm. be, be viral. It may be just back to the old technology and rat race. That's, you know, or was our normal, you know, a month ago. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's the big idea of our time. It turns out it's ancient, <laughs> ancient wisdom, but um, kind of refreshed through practice and, and through um, clinical research. I mean, the research is pretty clear. Uh, yeah. As a writer um, through this time, have you been taking notes uh, about the insights you've seen in um, the, sh- the societal shifts, the, you know, interpersonal, uh, you know, psychological shifts that you're, that you're witnessing right now? Has there been any kind of like, um, journalism that you've been taking note of, uh, through this unique time? Yeah, I keep a lot of, I keep big files on everything I I think about and read. And, um, right now I'm, I'm listening a lot rather than trying to process and create output. There's, there are a lot of great journalists who are creating a lot of in the moment output and I'm listening to them uh, trying to listen, you know, listen between the lines a little bit at the more, more subtle things that, you know, I think uh, early on I could tell that um, the psychological and emotional uh, damage of what we're going through would likely be as devastating as the, um, disease in terms of loss or diminishment of life. And, um, 
that was just a thought that I had or very early on based on other, other disasters that we've lived through, like the Gulf oil spill, for example, um, took the livelihoods of a lot of people, didn't kill them directly, but by taking their livelihood, uh, in some cases, it took their source of peace and calm and their source of freedom and liberty, their source of identity and dignity. And once that was taken away, they became depressed, but not, not after, uh, only after becoming angry and violent and sometimes drunk. And in many cases, that ended in, in tragedy. Uh, it was an oil spill in, in the ocean that precipitated that uh, emotional crisis on land in, you know, in, in the Southeast. Uh, and I think that's, that's likely to be the case here. Um, people who are losing their livelihoods, their homes, their dignity, um, their identity, uh, social cohesion, not to mention just going stir crazy. Uh, people who might've been already on the line a month ago, you know, in terms of emotional and mental health. Um, and so I'm, I pay, I've been paying a lot of attention to that and what, what's being said. Uh, the media generally don't want to cover that because it really is sad. <laughs> it's really heavy and sad, not a happy story, in however you cut it. Uh, so it doesn't get a lot of coverage. But Chris Cuomo, who's, who's been ill himself and uh, is on CNN and uh, in his basement now, he's, he's, the last few days he's gone there. He's starting to talk about the, um, the, the coronavirus and the psychological fight that he is in personally, like alone in his basement and how heavy and hard that's been. And he's a tough guy. You know, he's a journalist. He's on TV. He's resilient. He's a great family. He's got, um, I'm sure he's got savings in the bank. He's got a job still. Uh, and he's having a hard time. Um, so that's maybe one, one of the themes I'm kind of, thinking thinking about it sort of resilience and emotional health and you know if, if we think we're going to come into some sort of sustainable utopia on the other side of this because everybody had the light bulb turned on and we don't have emotional wellness there's no chance for sustainability i mean i i firmly believe that emotional health is the basis of sustainability 100 percent, and uh you're not going to have organizations and agencies that can lead unless you have a, an emotionally healthy group of people. Why? Uh, I think it's, it's hard to be creative. It's hard to be collaborative. Uh, your emotional health is deeply connected to your physical health. Um, building things like simple things like trust uh, in an emotionally unhealthy environment uh, is very difficult. Uh, and so all of that will keep us in a in the status quo uh, old model, I think. Um, you know, if nothing else, the the connection between emotional and physical health is is a big one. But if um, you know if people are uh, really hurting emotionally, it's it's hard to be a, a clear thinker. Uh, it's hard to be a creative and curious human. Uh, compassion and empathy. Uh, are more challenging um, if you're feeling emotionally unwell. And you tend to kind of, you know, when you're emotionally unhealthy, you tend to be a smaller version of yourself. You tend to pull in and hide. Uh, 
maybe try to hide that vulnerability and hide that reality. And that's just a shrinkage, you know, that isn't, uh, isn't necessarily good for the kinds of big, uh, creative, bold, collaborative efforts that I think we need. Um, you get maybe more fight or flight response out of that, which is more competitive than collaborative. Uh, and frankly, when you're in that fight or flight mode, creativity goes out the window 100%. It's all just, you know, like, you know, like you said, it's, it's part of your emotional toolkit and it's part of that whole wide range of incredibly wide range of emotions we have. And, and if you're good at fight or flight, you can, you can win. I mean, you can win games, you can win fights, you can win surf competitions, you can win elections even if you're good at fight or flight. What you're not good at is, is building movement. Uh, so you can, you can win the campaign, you can win the match, um, but you're not gonna you're not gonna build the movement, and uh, we see a lot of that you know going on already. Yeah. There's a quote. Um, I f- apologize, I forget who said it, um, I, but I just heard it recently. You can put a gun to a man's head and make him build a wall, but you can't put a gun to a man's head and make him have a great idea. <laughs> right. Or write a poem. Or write, or write a, a poem, poem, yeah. Or, yeah. I, I'm yeah. botching the quote, but I think that it's true. Well, you let's can make put someone a in a fight. You can put a... Yeah. <laughs> you can put a... Let's not use guns. Let's change it. You can put a... Uh, you can put a bottle rocket up a guy's nose and hold the lighter <laughs> yeah. there. And you, you can't make him uh, write a poem. <laughs> That's the new quote. You and I have known each other for a while, and right when the BP oil spill happened, um, I made a, an old doc, like one of my first docs, about uh, the banks that were financing the, uh, BP, and you had a chance to go out into the Gulf and um, take video and and see what was happening directly after when BP flew over with the Corexit, which was this chemical that sank all the oil to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and I got to see some of those videos of you out on those uh, marshlands with oil all over animals um, in the ocean. And then a number of years later, I was working for Discovery uh, and I had a chance to go to Louisiana and do a story on the six-year anniversary of the BP oil spill. And I went out to a spot called Grand Isle, Louisiana, uh, where the shrimp fishermen were. This is right next to uh, a spot which is uh, it's the largest oil import in the U.S. A third of the U.S. oil, United States oil, comes from Louisiana, and most of it comes through this one port. So I had a chance to go out and see the lasting effects of uh, this this oil spill, you had a chance to see it right after. Um, and I'm wondering, what was, what was it like for you to try and keep your eyes open and keep a, a clear head about yourself amidst um, being at the center of a disaster like that? Were there any techniques that you used or c- can you recall just what that was like? Yeah, I can recall very, very, very easily, like it was yesterday. Um, suffice it to say, it was it was horrific, the worst two weeks of my life, and uh, and I know I'm, I, I have friends and colleagues as you do who have experienced far 
more horrors in their lives. Um, my, the way I was able to um, kind of stay standing through it was, it was a couple of things. One, one was perspective. I chose to go there. I'm a marine biologist. I was living in California. I have a whole bunch of schooling. Um, it was my choice, which was a, is a kind of privilege and a duty. But um, so I kept in mind that I was going home in a matter of weeks, and uh, people who live there are not weren't they are home, and so that just kept me kind of grounded in a way and and kind of humble and based in reality um the literally trillions of organisms dying if you you know put it bluntly if you think of all the microorganisms the plankton all the fish and and everything in between uh just that just the the scale of death um uh i've done i've dealt with a lot of dead ocean animals in my career just as part of the course of studying the ocean uh, pulled plastic out of animals and, you know, done autopsies, necropsies on animals that were caught in fishing nets and you name it. But the scale, just the the sheer numbers, whether you're counting turtles and turtles and birds and dolphins and then fish and crabs and just all the things that are almost too small for you to even see. Um, and then the human devastation, both the physical and the emotional loss. Um, just really just over, overwhelming. And I think com- comparable in a probably smaller way to what's happening now, sort of in this uh, moment of this global pandemic. But um, I, you know, I, I called, it was the early days of, of like FaceTime uh, technology. And I don't even know if that's what it was called, but I could call home and, and video chat my kids uh, who were quite a bit younger. And, uh, that kept me kind of grounded. Um, I you know, also, my, I think my rudder's pretty deep in the water generally in terms of my commitment to what I do. I'm, I signed up for this and I'm going to work to make our waters and oceans healthier until I drop dead. So that helps you move through hard stuff or swim through walls um, when you know, know what your why is, as I like to say. Um, well, I remember calling Julia, who's now 15, and so she was four, I guess, uh, then. And uh, remember, she she got on video chat and she said, "So you know, so remember the the gut? It was just gushing oil, and it was basically a, a live stream uh, of that camera down there at the well, and everybody in the world was watching it, going, okay, when are they going to stop this?'" and it was like reality, weird reality TV, like completely weird, perverted reality TV. So this global kind of uh, freak out about this one well spreading all this oil. And so Julia gets on. She goes, Dad, did you fix it? And I was just like, honey, that's not my job. Uh, and then she goes, did anybody fix it? And I said, they're working on it. And then she goes, Dad, did you fix anything? And it just, I just lost it. I mean, you know, I don't know if at that point she'd seen me cry very much, but I was just like, I tried to answer straight faced. The answer, I didn't fix anything. I was just like, 
kicking my butt, kid. Come on, just lay off because it's so overwhelming. And you want you think oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna help, right? I'm here to help. I got my hands. I got my strong back. I got like I don't know some money in my pocket. I'm ready to help. Uh, got a PhD. Damn it, I'm gonna here to help. I'm gonna fix anything. I was just like taking taking up space, shooting my video, you know, scrubbing a little oil off a few animals. Um, she just put it right in perspective, and uh, I'll never forget that because that's kind of how you feel. I mean, if you're if you're trying to do good and trying to make a contribution, um, tumbling right to you know, but you you do your thing every hour, day to day stack those days together and then you know like we were talking about earlier sometimes you see like wow i i've made a i've made a small real contribution here uh, at any given moment i wasn't sure i was doing it much of any good but when you start stringing all those hours and days months and years together um you kind of see that you've you've left left the place a, at least a little bit better and you've helped some people um get through their lives, maybe saved a few turtles along the way. Uh, but yeah, that connection to my family was, um, you know, important. Yeah. I was, uh, you, you know, I did the motherfucker awards the last two years, this comedy show where we celebrate corporations for their <laughs> egregious environmental crimes. And we had a lot of help and a diverse array of people with skill sets ranging from writing to motion graphics to driving merch from one place to another. And a lot of the people that were the most valuable assets on the, on the team were people like, um, you know, someone who had access to a set design studio. So this is something that you would not typically see as um, a skill for change, mm -hmm. a skill for creating, you know, environmental or social change. But um, as I was pulling all these people together, it required a lot of different skill sets that were, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of uh, mm -hmm. as be, you know, being skills of the ardent activist. Mm -hmm. What skills have you developed throughout your career that have allowed you to be the most effective in your work? Mm. You know, I, th this is one thing I, I find myself when I'm talking to young, younger folks who are starting out in their careers or maybe contemplating grad school or, you know, first job or starting an organization. Um, the the ability not just to trust your gut but to know when to trust your gut and that comes from as much from just bombing as it does uh from having any any kind of success and because you know i, I can look back on seven major projects that i've worked on that i think were pretty good and and worked out and made a contribution in all seven of them, in every case, I was told, you're committing career suicide by the smart people, by my mentors, by the funders, um, by graduate school advisors, by you know, the people, the next generation uh, leaders. 
in every case, I was told, don't do it. It's a waste of time. It's career suicide. You're going to wreck your, your trajectory, whatever that means. Um, and in every case, they were wrong. Not to say that I didn't make mistakes and there were projects that didn't work out, but in like seven important projects that I've been involved in, uh, the leadership that you might have gone to for funding and advice was wrong. And being able to trust your gut and have some kind of confidence, I'm not going to call it courage because it definitely doesn't feel like courage. It feels more like, you know, a naive freak out than courage. Um, but knowing, you know, you know in your gut, I, I get, I'm going to do this. And I'm not sure exactly why, but the, the data I've collected are suggesting that this is, there's like a, you know, thread the needle chance that this could work out. Uh, it's not completely ridiculous, but pretty ridiculous. Uh, and I can see, I can see the steps from here to where I think this could go. Um, and then trusting in yourself or not, or saying, okay, I, my gut check says bail, bail on this one. This, this was a, an idea and it wasn't a good idea. I'm glad I'm bailing early. Um, but I think that that's a skill you, you, you don't necessarily start out with that unless you're some sort of psychic. And I don't know if those people are real, but if they are good for them, they can, they just know. Um, but I think that's something you learn and you learn what it feels like when you have a bona fide good idea that can be useful and successful. Um, yeah. Can you describe that feeling? Yeah, it's kind of like I you can see you can see and feel um, the first step and what that looks like and who's involved and what that leads to, and then you can see the second step, but it's a little fuzzier. But still, the second step's there, and then the third, fourth, fifth, out to the hundredth step, and you can you can see them. They get they get fuzzier and they get kind of like windblown as you get further away. And so you can kind of see the trajectory or, or how the path could go. And it gets, maybe it gets fuzzier and wider as it moves away from today. Uh, and so that just that ability to see how it could go and how a plan could come together um, if given the chance. And of course, none of that happens if it's not given the chance. And, uh, and when you can see it, then you can kind of say, I'm, I feel confident that I can find this path. I can feel my way through. I can decipher the tracks and figure out which one of these is, in fact, the place to step day after day and month after month after month. And that's kind of what it feels like, kind of like there's a, there's a trail there. Um, the, I wrote early, early on in my I'm going to say writing, I'm going to call it my writing career because I wasn't writing as a career then, but I remember writing in my journal that my life felt like it was leading itself. Like I was just, the more I just let, you know, close my eyes and put my hands by my side, the better. Cause it, and it felt like uh, a piece of fishing line was hooked into a little, eye hook in, that's implanted in my sternum, tied tightly onto my, anchored in my sternum, and it was being reeled in. 
And I, I remember writing that and I, you know, I still look back on that on the exact page. I'm like, what the hell is I? What did I mean? Uh, and so that's kind of what it feels like when you, if you surrender to, to that um, and, and you move towards the pull, you know, uh, and trust it. And even when your most valued advisors and mentors are saying, you know, you're committing career suicide, son, don't, don't do that. We strongly advise against that plan. You just kind of put your hands out and close your eyes and let it, let it pull you forward. Um, that's what it feels like in actual execution. There's, it's not, it's not passive. <laughs> it's a lot of work, uh, a lot of effort and a lot of, a lot of heartburn and, you know, collaboration and all those things. But, um, and I felt that way, you know, the work I've done the last 10 years with blue mind, um, you know, I was, I was told point blank that it was really a bad idea that there was, you know, even when I pitched my book to publishers, they thought this is, this is a magazine article. There's no, there's nothing here. Um, turns out there's endless, um, interesting stuff there beyond, certainly beyond one book. Uh, I was told by my colleagues, you're throwing your career away as a marine ecologist. I was told by funders very clearly, oh, for 20 on, on grant proposals. Uh, that's just, they don't have to say much. They just say, no, thank you. Not funding you. Um, but deep down, I was like, this, this idea needs to live. Um, you know, and, and so here we are. Uh, but that, you know, that's just one example. What's, has there been a, most uh gratifying uh has there been something most gratifying about your experience with blue mind over the past 10 years has it just been meeting the people who say that it's impacted them uh has there been anything that like makes you feel like damn that was cool and this this is worth it yeah i'll tell you a few of the the shallower answers and i'll tell you the one that's gonna really get me a little emotional um I talk to people every day who said this work has improved my life. Uh, I talk to people not every day, but very regularly people say this, this idea saved my life. Um, whether there are people dealing with anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress, addiction, um, and you know, depression, um, that they being reminded how much they love and need their water, uh, has, uh, kept them alive and, and then in many more cases, just, you know, mildly or severely improve their lives. And so that's very gratifying. And, you know, if, if this work saved one life, then it's, it's all worth doing. Uh, and I don't say that sort of flippantly or it's kind of cliche. That's kind of how I feel. Um, but the most, this is very recent. Um, our daughter, Grace, uh, went through a four year, pretty heavy health crisis that, um, I'll let her talk about because it's not my, not my story, uh, but um, where it began with the Stanford, Stanford doctors uh, who knew the most in the world about what she was dealing with saying she had a, a 10% chance, a 90% chance of dying, 10% chance of living. Um, and I remember driving home over the hill on the 17 
with the girls, with Dana and the girls in the back of the car on the floor and just in a ball crying. And I'm just trying to stay on the road and get us back home. Um, and through that, she, you know, she's, she's thriving. She's going to graduate from high school this year in a, in a virtual graduation. It's just a whole other story, but the, um, she relied on, uh, for, for her healing, she relied on her water and, you know, her, her relationship with, with the ocean and with being in the water. And, uh, um, and we all did you know, to hold the family together, uh, to get through that four year, you know, it just drained all of our tanks in every, every way, shape of financially, spiritually, emotionally, um, socially, uh, and uh, so here's the, here's the cool thing. This is, not, this is not a sad story. Grace is doing great. Um, she, I do an online book club every night, uh, every year. You just read, the, read my book on Facebook Live. I've done it for seven years. And I've never been able to get Grace to do it, to sit in as a guest reader. And the other day she did. And I said, hey, we're, you know, we're reading chapter six, we're right about here. You just get online and you read four or five pages and chat with people. And, and she said, she'd do it. And I just said, I set her up and I, got, I left and just let, I didn't, was not involved at all. And then I went in the other room and just kind of listened in online. And that kid, like she's just, been, she's, she's just absorbed the, the science, the practice, her own personal insights and i couldn't have done it said any of it better myself and um it just you know clearly helped her get through her struggle but then it just went really deep into her and she her understanding you know and you know teenagers sometimes don't aren't so talkative with their dads or moms and kind of go through a stage and she just blew me away and i was uh and not, it's not just like proud dad stuff. It's like, wow, this kid, this young woman is going to take these ideas and run them up her own flagpole in whatever way that is um, and help a lot of people. And uh, that, you know, that's about all you can really ask for is just like handing off um, your work to more capable minds and you know, young, nimble, creative uh, leaders. And if it happens to be your daughter, well, damn, that's like, that's cool. And um, she's an artist and she's into nature and sustainability, but she's an artist. Like that's her, um, she'd describe herself as an artist. And so uh, she's going to take the idea of nature as medicine and art as therapy and this idea that emotional wellness is the basis of sustainability and she's going to mash all that together in her way and do something really cool. And um, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what she knew. And, uh, and to just kind of like step out of the way and just say, this is yours. You know, you take over. And she loved it. She was like, Hey, she was on Facebook Live talking to the book club and just like shooting the shit and just answering questions. More, more views, 
more questions, more enthusiasm than seven years of my book clubbing combined. And I like, I was just like, man, you're hired. I'm out of here. <laughs> my job's done. And uh, so anyway, that was just a fresh That's situation. a powerful but, story. Yeah, I haven't shared that with anyone. But even her, that's kind of a little lurky in the background there, but really proud of her. Uh, I appreciate that. I think that a lot of people who listen to this podcast have a deep relationship with water that they can't fully explain. I get mm -hmm. messages and these voice memos from people that live near lakes, people that are you know, hundreds of miles away from the ocean, but they still connect with this podcast for some reason because they have that relationship with water. Um, mm -hmm. And most of, most of them don't, they can't fully put it into words, but um, I, I just found that to be the case with a lot of people that mm -hmm. um, tune into this show. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think the key there is, you know, it's a, it's an important point because we're not, we're talking about water. We're not talking about oceans with all oceans are included. Certainly we're talking about water. So we're talking about pools and ponds and rainstorms and creeks and great lakes and minor lakes and, big rivers and uh, ponds and, you know, float tanks and your bathtub and urban fountains in the Pacific and the Atlantic, all the oceans and um, all of it. And um, it's such a uniting concept when we get out of the ocean tribe, the river tribe, the lake. I mean, that's just more divisiveness in my opinion. Um, why more river conservationists don't talk to ocean conservationists, I don't know. Uh, it's all going in the same place and cycling back around and all of the issues are the same. It's, it's, it's one water. So I try to be really ecumenical with the Blue Mind message and really inviting um, surfers, boaters, open water swimmers, paddlers, divers, free divers, people who just like to bob around you know, on a big inflated thing. Like, come on, let's talk about how that feels. And uh, rather than like, oh, wow, you, you're a stand-up paddleboarder? Oh, you're a longboarder? Oh, I mean, it's all this divisiveness. It's just bullshit. And it does serves nothing. Maybe it serves like sales, you know, sales of magazines, sales of boards. I don't know. But as far as humanity goes, it's, it doesn't really serve much um, purpose. Yeah. I feel that divisiveness falling away in the midst of this yeah. pandemic. When I go Absolutely. surf now, there is a kind of head nod and smile that I see that is new. Um, yeah. Every time I go surf, I don't know if it's going to get banned again. I don't know how much longer this resource I'm going to be. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to enjoy this resource. Yeah. And um, it's funny how often in my life in the water, I felt a kind of insufficiency in relationship to surfing. There was a lot of self-talk about not being good enough or this guy being better than me. And as soon as the re as there's the potential for the whole resource to be taken away, mm -hmm. I'm just out there enjoying it. Right. All of that insufficiency that. goes away and you realize that it is just bullshit that was mm -hmm. holding you back. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting I don't know if we've we've directly underscored this point, but right now we are in a time where all of humanity is thinking about the same thing. 
we are connected in our minds because we're all working through this same problem. But humanity is also literally connected through water. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So it, there's there's the there's the literal connection to this the, this virus. There's a literal connection to water. Then there's all these there are all these great metaphors of unity and oneness and that have always been around. Um, it reminds me of the uh, the first photograph ever taken of the whole planet, our whole planet, uh, from space. Uh, you know, Apollo 17 astronauts and a little bit contentious about who actually took the photograph. So let's just say it was a team effort. It was a, they all took the photograph with their big old Hasselblad, you know, with actual film. And um, it's the most reproduced photograph of all time, uh, which implies that we think it's beautiful. Uh, literally the most reproduced photograph of all time. It's called the blue marble is the name of the photograph. And that when it happened, it said that it was a very uniting event for the whole planet to see ourselves uh, together, to see ourselves for the first time. And as, as a, you know, a fragile blue marble in space. Um, and so all the astronauts who have since traveled that far away to have a look at our home from that distance, they all describe the same phenomenon that they call the overview effect. And it's a psychological response to kind of what you're talking about, to being all on the same page, except with, in, this, in their case, just a little group of, of people, but going, wow, we're, that's, that's home, that's it. And if I look in any other direction, it's just dark, vast, and nothing. I look, I look over there and it's my home and it's finite and fragile and everything I've ever known happened there. And you know, to go paraphrase Carl Sagan, you know, all the wars, all the parties, uh, you know, all the good, good times, and all the bad times all happen right here on this one little, little blue marble. And, um, we're not going to get, we're all not going to get a chance to go out there a million miles and look back and go, wow, that's beautiful. Uh, so we need to use other ways to unite around protecting our home. And this is what, apparently one of them, you know, there's this, there's this common, this common song that we're singing. That's like, Hey, let's, let's take care of, uh, of ourselves and each other. And hey, look what happens when we chill a little bit. You know, the waters and airs get cleaner, and the wildlife starts to go a little nutty and run around. And um, fisheries apparently are making a little bit of a bounce, and uh, and that's pretty cool. How do we keep some of that going? You know, once we we lift our our limitations, and um, so it's it's uh, it kind of taps into that. Like what what binds us and what's what's the story and I, and I think it comes back to water i mean that if you're an astronaut looking back on earth mostly what you're seeing is water that's why it's called the blue marble not the green marble or the brown marble it's because of the water and uh that's the one thing we all have in common that 9.21 months we all spent underwater in our own private ocean called mom we all have that in common plus or minus you might have been a little later a little early or really early, but still you spend a good long time 
swimming around in that nice warm dark ocean salty water called mom and um we all have that in common you know we're all made mostly of water uh we all know life came from the water uh so if you're looking for a theme to unite around it's it's definitely water but not just in the the poetic metaphorical and spiritual sense although yes to all of that also in the biological the ecological the chemical sense and in terms of our economy but also our emotional health you know the idea that uh if you're feeling a little a little um, as herman melville says if you're feeling a little november in your soul which I, I call that gray mind. Um, it's high time to get back to the sea. That's what he says in the first page of Moby Dick. Uh, so if you're feeling that November in your soul, even if it's April, um, that's a little gray mind, a little maybe a little burnt out, a little depressed, get in the water. And if you can't get to the ocean or the lake or the river that you would normally go to, you know, fire up hot bath and turn on little little Jack Johnson or, or whatever your, your preferred uh, tunes are, maybe a little ocean soundtrack, you know, get a glass of wine or whatever your preference is and lock the door and pour some bubble bath in there and just, you know, be in the water. I guarantee if you're, if you're listening to this and you haven't taken a bath this week, uh, do it. And there's no, and if you don't have a bathtub, knock on your neighbor's door and <laughs> borrow theirs. <laughs> Or take a cold plunge. It's interesting how yeah. how water can provide us these two um, very different emotional states just based mm -hmm. on the temperature. I've never thought Absolutely. about that. Warm yeah. water relaxes us. It puts us in this very calm state. Cold water forces us to move through misery and come out <laughs> the other end yeah. stronger. Yeah. And kind of the combination is super effective. You take a nice hot bath and then end it with icy shower and icy cold plunge. Um, it's a good, good combo. Yeah, for sure. Do, are you taking cold plunges right now? Doing my best. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it's easy, you know, California coast is it's cold plunges are readily available. Assuming you have access, uh, you know, it never really becomes a warm plunge, no matter what time of year. Um, but uh, I know there, you know, there are all these these companies now that are creating in-home sort of ice bath uh, uh, facilities where you can you can really you know keep your your cold plunging uh, in-home very active. Yeah, a buddy of mine uh, bought an outdoor freezer. And then just filled it up with cold water. And every time he goes out, it's you know, a 30 something degree yeah. cold. Plunge. Uh, yeah. Doing cold plunges has had a significant impact on my life. Um, mm -hmm. Partly because it forces me to do something that I don't want to do first thing <laughs> in the morning. And then every problem after that's in relationship <laughs> to submerging myself into cold water feels yeah. smaller and more manageable. Mm -hmm. And I think shifting relationship to misery can be, can be a really powerful um, mental tool that you can do just by getting in the cold water for a couple minutes. Yeah. And that, that's one example. It's 100% in your hands. You're making 100% of that decision. It's, there's nobody, you know, over your shoulder going, come on, Kyle get in the cold plunge. Come on, you can do it. It's just you. It's all in your head. 
and if you pull it off, then you, you can take all the credit for, for overcoming that, you know, that resistance and just, Oh, I'll just skip it today. Um, but then, yeah, that sets you up for, for the rest of the day. And, and it's invigorating, you know, it's, I mean, better, better than an espresso in the morning by far in many ways. And, uh, and then there's this, you know, there's this invigoration, but then on the other side of that is this calm centeredness. So in a way it kind of achieves the goal of the hot bath while after the misery, the pain and, and maybe the resistance and the invigoration comes that like you're hot, literally you, you feel like you're on fire depending on how long you've been in that, in that ice water. Um, once you come out of the you know, very cold uh, experience, uh, at least for me, it's like, it's like you're on fire uh, after that. Yeah. I liked what you said about uh, cold plunging being completely your doing. You're taking personal responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. I really like the idea that personal responsibility is a key to meaning. And right mm-hmm. now I've been receiving more emails that end with, I hope you're doing well in these uncertain times than any other period. (laughs) Uncertainty is the word of today. And we always live in uncertain times, but right now we all really feel it. (laughs) But an antidote to uncertainty can be personal responsibility. At any point Mm. in life, you still have choices that you can make. And Mm. you hit the nail on the head when you said that cold plunge, cold plunging is something that is completely your doing mm-hmm. and i think well, i think what we've got right now is permission to talk about uncertainty uh in polite company because we're all on the same page whereas you know two months ago you could have made that point that nobody's certain about anything and that would just make people uncomfortable and make you seem like a jerk and like maybe or just like a rogue philosopher uh and as true as it was two, two, three, four months ago, as true as it was that there was a lot of uncertainty in the universe, now it's like it's politically correct to talk about uncertainty in a, in a <laughs> there's permission to talk about it. So that's kind of I think what's changed around that. But um, you know, I think the the uh, ne- next big project I'm working on is kind of taking you know I'll jump the gun here a little bit because. It's, it's a book, but I've been speaking about it quite a bit uh, in facilitating leadership. And, um, but there's, a, there's so many great books about how to hack yourself, right? And you've, you've covered so many of the topics and spoken with many of the authors and researchers. And there, there's this, we, we're kind of coming through like the peak um, time of taking better care of yourself and increasing your personal performance. Um, I'm sick of it. I'm just tired of all the me. I'm tired of how, hacking everything and everybody talking about how much more everything they are all the time. Like, so every breath while you sleep, there's a metric for that. And you can maximize and optimize every aspect of your life, of your wake, of waking and sleeping life. I'm just sick of that. And it gets, it's a little, it's kind of the American version of self-help just taken to the nth degree. Um, 
And even in places like Esalen that are all about, you know, personal enhancement, we've run the course. Like we're, we've got the science, we've got the chemistry, we've got the know-how, we've got cold plunges, we've got biohacking, we've got sleep monitoring, we've got all kinds of breath work. It's just like, it's endless. What I'm, and that, so it gets you to that personal flow state. But if you're in flow and you're not in what I call groove, it's just very me oriented. And I think back to when I was in high school, I used to go and see Michael Jordan play basketball uh, at the old Chicago stadium. And he would, he would set records literally like score 55, 60 points in a game. He would fly. Like, I don't know how he defy gravity. He's sticking his tongue out, floating across half the court, dunking the ball, just people going wild. And the Bulls would lose and not go to the playoffs again. And you're like, wow, that guy is the best anybody's ever seen in a long time. He's in a perfect flow state when he's on the court. Just absolutely physically, mentally, performance-wise, psychologically, he's just the epitome of flow and peak performance. Awesome. And the Bulls, the team, lose over and over and over, and they don't go to the playoffs. And it wasn't until they got a Zen coach and a, more players, and they put together their groove, and they started to flow together, that things got real, and they became a dynasty. And I, of course, the goal isn't just to win NBA titles. The goal is to actually win the game of life on Earth, like a healthy planet. That's our goal. Um, but if we just keep sort of biohacking ourselves and just like, you know, posting everything about how cool our life is and how maximized everything is, we're not going to get there. So it's that it's the me to we move. And it's when, you know, it's like a, one of the reasons I love our conversations because I think they groove. I think we um, respect each other, have known each other long enough. I admire your skill set, admire your intellect. There's a certain degree of trust. I can share personal things. Uh, and I think it's mutual. Um, so there's a, a recipe for groove that happens between two people, between a family. It could be a couple. It could be friends. It could be a family. It could be a team. It could be a rock band. Uh, it could be an organization or a business. Um, can also be a community and it could be a nation and even could be humanity could be a species uh and if you get all the ingredients um it's magic like when you when you hear your favorite band play and maybe the lead guitarist is having a great night and the drummer's off and the bass player is hung over but that lead guitarist is in a flow state and just a, a virtuoso but the band kind of stinks uh, and you're a big fan, so you know it. Maybe a lot of people might not notice. But if they're in, if they're grooving, they're you know their their feet leave the stage. I mean, they're they just they they elevate, and it's special. Um, and it's not just about one lead guitarist just having a great night. It's about 100% of the band having a great night together, and it's almost a mind meld. Um, they start going into a real nonverbal communication mode, um, doing things they've never done before. It's not just rote memorization. It's not class, perfect classical music. It's, you know. And so that groove state, I think, is 
that's what I'm excited about is how do we, how do we take this common moment in all of that, you know, self hacking and improvement knowledge, you know, whether, whether it's related to your diet or your, your workouts or your cold plunging or your, you know, whatever hallucinogenic uh, experience you might have found enlightenment through um, and connecting that web of humanity and into a, a groove state rather than just a flow state. In, uh, and uh, even if you are still in the state of me over we, you'd love this. There is a study that came out that um, Chris Ryan often references that the number one signifier for longevity in life, number one, more than diet, more than exercise, being embedded within a community that loves you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's the we, that's the groove. That's, uh, turns out it's good for long lives. Wow, there you go. Um, well, yeah. um, Dan Siegel, who's a UCLA um, medical school professor uh, and great speaker, writer, leader, uh, mentor. He calls it the MWE, M-W-E. So he takes me and we and mashes them into a new word. <laughs> it's fun to say. Say it along, MWE. It's really kind of, it kind of sounds a little French. Um, yeah. And uh, it's kind of that, that uh, pronoun where you know, the me and the we just sort of blend and you're not really sure one, where one begins and one ends. Uh, what books has Dan Siegel written? Uh, let's see. What is his, his most recent one he wrote on forecasting? And I think it's called Forecast. Um, I really like it's uh, all about your ability to, um, kind of what we were talking about earlier, uh, look ahead and, and, um, the, the neurobiology, the neuroscience of kind of being able to kind of see around corners and what, what really are the ingredients, you know, it's not, it's not a psychic ability to, um, uh, they're based on foresight. Actually, that might be the, the name of it's foresight. Uh, it's one of my high, re highly recommended, um, books, but he, you know, he told me he's working on, um, a new book on the prenatal, uh, brain and so sort of like the the emotional uh, cognitive psychological life um, that we all have experienced before we're born we're just like what's what's going down in the brain of a of, you know a child baby uh, which is just kind of like wow we start thinking about that it's you know it's that ultimate float tank uh, for 9.21 months and your entire brain is being formed in that environment from no cells to, you know, billions of cells, uh, in your nervous system. And so that's, and he's been working on that for a little while. And, uh, yeah, I, I recommend he's got a, uh, some really great, um, sort of Ted like talks that are easy to, easy to digest. Um, Dan Siegel. Yeah. Mm. I have a big list written down of guests that I want to get. And Dan Siegel has been on that list for a while, but I haven't done a lot of research into his work. It's just that enough people have told me that name that it's on the list. <laughs> and eventually I want to reach out to that guy. 
Yeah, he's a super guy. Really, like you'll enjoy talking to him. He's really fun and really, uh, and loves the water, loves the ocean. I, I quote him in Blue Mind. Um, uh, he has a passage from from one of his books about his childhood experience by the ocean in LA, LA County. What's a, the word for someone who loves water? Is there a word for that? Like a uh, an aqua, you know, aquaphile? An aquaphile? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aquaphiliac. Um, yeah, there, are, I mean, there are a lot of uh, closet aquaphiles I've I've discovered. I know that's that just sounds like a weird sentence, <laughs> yeah. but I get a lot of people on this show um, who will come on because they they find out that I'm a surfer and they're like in the their closet surfers or they grew yeah. up you know somewhere where they you know they had some. Um, deep experience with the water when i whenever i do these days whenever i do a, a talk a keynote or a workshop i always start out asking everybody in the room what's your water so my kind of go-to question uh, what's the water you first fell in love with or that you first remember turn to the person next to you and have a five-minute conversation about it never fails to just explode the room in noise because people, uh, whether they've, sometimes they've never thought about it, but then they realize, wow, I got a lot of good stories and they, they tap into one and it can get extremely emotional. People just catches people by surprise. Uh, and I'll, you know, sometimes we'll lay into that a little bit and I'll say, okay, part B, um, who took you to your, the water you love, the water that's gotten you through hard times or helped make you who you are. Who is your guide and um, have you thanked them for that, that gift? And, uh, and I gave a talk one time at a uh, wastewater management conference in Alberta, Canada. So you got wastewater engineers from all over Canada gathered in Banff in the winter. And I thought, this is, this is going to be a hard crowd. This is going to be a... You know, I was expecting crossed arms and leaning back. And, you know, it's basically, you know, a bunch of middle-aged dudes, Canadian engineers, as you might imagine. Um, it's no surprise there's more men in engineering, especially in wastewater, than there are women. And uh, so I thought, well, this is going to be a hard crowd. I'm just going to get through my keynote and get, get out of here. And uh, we started talking about that part of it. And I'd say half the room was crying. Uh, they all got blue marbles. And I said, hey, this is just a small gesture of gratitude. Um, I'm not sure if anybody's ever said thank you to you for making sure our water systems work. Because uh, if they fail, it pollutes our rivers and our lakes and our, ultimately our oceans. So when you get your job right, nobody knows. It just, the toilet flushes. It's great. Uh, the water comes out of the sink. And they kind of lost it. Like they lost their shit. Like right there in the auditorium, they're like, nobody's ever said thank you. No, nobody calls and says, hey, toilet flush like a dream again today, Bob. Thank you very much. Never. Not once. They only call when there's big, when bad shit happens, literally. And it was, it was to your point, like they all love their rivers, their lakes, fishing, boating, taking their kids out hiking along the water, uh, swimming. Yeah, they work all week. And on the weekends, they go to their water 
and re hit the reset button. And, you know, they're not necessarily surfers or ocean lovers. They're water lovers. They're aquaphiles. Uh, and so that, you know, again, back to where, what brings us together. It's, it's water. Um, you know, if you're in the city, it might be a fountain, you know, a public fountain. It might be, you know, when we were kids, it was like they would open up fire hydrants and we would just run around in front of the, that fire hydrant spray of water. Um, and everybody's got some deep, cool water story to share and someone to thank uh, for being their, their guide or their mentor, you know, the person who taught them to surf or taught them to swim, or taught them to dive, you know, or say, hey, follow me. We're going to this cool spot for a swim. Might have been, might have been camp, summer camp, or could have been a parent. Um, and so I love, I just really love those conversations. And fortunately my job these days is basically to travel and have those conversations, uh, all over the place and remind people, you know, that the emotional health benefits when, of course, when the ocean and the rivers and the lakes are accessible and healthy, right? You remove access and you remove the water's health, then all of that goes away. Uh, all of the peace and freedom and calm and romance and healing and uh, solitude, um, not to mention the, the physical health benefits. Uh, if you, you know, you pollute the ocean, it, that all goes away. Um, that's like, that's the, the kind of the, the point of it all, really. Yeah. Well, Jay. For a guy who grew up with a stutter, you have become a powerful speaker. <laughs> I get in the flow there. You ask the right question and they get talking about water. And it's, it's, I appreciate uh, it. We've been going yeah, for a okay. while. Are there any yeah. last words that you have for some aquaphiles before we sign off? Yeah, definitely. Well, so we're, you know, before, during, after this global pandemic, um, Find your blue mind if you haven't already, uh, but don't hold, don't keep it to yourself. Um, that me to we piece is so important. Take somebody with you. If there's somebody in your household that uh, is experiencing too much red mind or gray mind, get them wet. You know, cold plunge them. Get that yard hose and just go out there together and hold it over your head and shake. You know, it's cold. Uh, make a bath for them throw some bubbles in there and let them have an hour of peace in the bathtub or, and if you can, when you can get to your water, take, grab them by the hand. You know, there's going to be a lot of people uh, really hurting in the next weeks and months ahead, big time. Um, and the best way to heal that I know of is, is water. And so share your aquaphilia,ness aqua, aquaphilia, share your aquaphilia, um, with everybody, you know, far and wide, you know, get in touch if you need some science to back it up. You probably don't even need that, but, um, we've got lots of cool resources, videos and articles and, you know, if you need that, but the key is let's, let's put that blue mind into action, um, collectively this summer because, uh, it will save lives, uh, it will heal people. Um, doesn't solve and really all of our problems. Um, not a silver bullet, but 
it's the best medicine we have uh, by far, along with music, you know, I think of music and water kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. And your podcast. And of course, my podcast. Yeah. 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 One, two, three, punch. (laughs) Nice save. Nice save. (laughs) Well, I will link to your work below for everyone who wants to check it out and they can buy your book, Blue Mind, now that they have all this extra time on their hands. And if you have no money, uh, just Google my book, you'll find it free spread out all over the internet I and mean, then there's you know save yourself 11 bucks if you don't have it um it's not a sales pitch this is a movement you know a groundswell so yeah thank you jay thank you oh thank you kyle it's always awesome that's our show i'm gonna play out the song called checkpoints by dry reef these guys listen to the podcast and they sent me some tunes if you're part of a band and you want your music played at the end of the show email it to info at kyle.surf info at kyle.surf is where you can also send me those voice memos let me know who you are where you're listening from you know me but i don't know you and i'd like to get to know you so uh just let me know who you are some details about your surroundings keep it under a minute and email it to info at kyle.surf. Kyle.surf is where you can also sign up for my newsletter and get my short stories, like the recent one that I posted about how to interview your dad and why you should do it now. I interviewed my dad a few episodes back and it got such a big response um, that I decided to post an article about some interview techniques that can help you conduct an interview with your parents via Zoom more successfully. So I hope that you take on that challenge because it's something that you will not forget. That's it for now. I'll see you next week. Go get out in the water, whatever water is closest to you. And I hope you enjoy this song called Checkpoints by Dry Reef.
when I learn what was right and what's wrong And all the thoughts that keep me up at night 